This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins. This is part two of our coverage on Indian Creek climbing. In the first part, we talked with David Carter, who created a survey for Indian Creek climbers. Today, we are talking with Ty Tyler of the Access Fund, which is responsible for initiating the survey and moving forward with the results. I'm Ty Tyler. I'm the Stewardship Director at the Access Fund. And the Access Fund is the national nonprofit organization that keeps climbing areas open and conserves the climbing environment. My role at the organization for the last nine and a half years at this point has been to work with local advocates, land managers, private landowners, different municipalities to ensure that you know, outdoor climbing areas are sustainable well into the future. Today, one in five climbing areas in the United States is threatened. And I was wondering if you could just explain in more detail what, what is meant by threatened. Sure, the term threatened, one in five climbing areas is threatened. Uh, it's a pretty broad topic. Uh, there's a lot of climbing areas that are on, on private land. And so those are somewhat not secure. Maybe a, a, a private landowner is like, well, I, I'm okay with climbers this year, but next year they may change their mind and be like, you know what? I don't want to let people climb. here," And so that's definitely a threat to, to access. There's public land access threats out there. So, you know, extractive industries that may destroy an entire climbing resource that we're seeing in a few different spots. That's obviously a threat as well. There's the threat of sustainability as far as impacts are concerned, whether it's whether it's human waste concerns or erosion or plant loss or you know, species conflicts, things like that, those are also threats. So it kind of runs the gamut and almost every climbing area, there's very, very few or any that are actually like in perfect status where the place is well stewarded, it's well set up, it's ready to handle the masses into the future. The landowners or the land manager is super happy with how everything is going. So just kind of that that threat, one in five is, is under threat is, is definitely a pretty broad term. And I suppose a lot of what Access does as the Access Fund is to try and work on those one in five and work to make them more sustainable. Is that sort of correct? Yeah, yeah, more or less. So we work on every climbing area, basically. There's climbing in almost every state, I think, Ms. Mississippi and Louisiana are kind of like the only ones and maybe Florida that that has, I think Florida has one limestone little crag. Um, But so for us at the Access Fund, we're a national organization. And so we work alongside advocates in in all of these different, these different climbing communities on whatever needs they have. And sometimes there's hot topic issues that we need to kind of put a lot of time into that will stay kind of on our radar for up to 10 years, 20 years, things like um, Oak Flat and, and Arizona that's been on our on our radar for 15 years at this point, to sometimes ones that pop up overnight, where say a private landowner decides, yep, you know what, I'm going to put no trespassing signs on this property because I don't want people climbing here anymore. And so we'll kind of have to jump in on those sorts of things. And so for our organization, we have, we have several program areas. We have stewardship and conservation, which is the one that I'm responsible for. We have policy and advocacy where we actually work on on policy issues, whether they're local policy issues, but say a forest service district or at the national level when it comes to funding our public lands. We do landowner support where for private landowners, if they have uh, liability or just concerns around having allowing rock climbing on their private land, we kind of support them. We also do land conservation and acquisition. We actually have a revolving loan program where we will 
take money out of that out, out of that loan program, loan it to say a, a local nonprofit who buys a climbing area, and then they pay that loan back over a couple of years to go back into that revolving loan program. And then we do a host of education things for for our, our local advocate community, climbers in general, things like that. So we're kind of kind of all all around doing what we can to keep climate areas open and conserved. Yeah, that's great. This year you worked with uh, Utah State University putting together a survey of climbers who use Indian Creek. What were the big takeaways from that survey? There were a lot of really good takeaways from that one. I think one that stood out and, and is one of the reasons, you know, it gave us some real support for the Climber Steward program is that people were actually really craving some education. Climbers that visit Indian Creek, they're, they're out there. It's a pretty wide open landscape, as, as a lot of us know. There's not a lot of signage. There's not a lot of information. There's just some real basic kind of rough and tumble ways that people interact with that. So it was, it was wonderful to see that people were craving some education on the Indigenous history of the area, land management boundaries and land management policies, uh, raptor issues, things like cultural resource protection, a lot of that sort of stuff, people were craving craving that and wanting a little bit more of that. I think another takeaway where people were really concerned about the, the sensitive environment that is in Indian Creek and how our growing use down there and the growing use of other visitors now that it's a, a national monument is starting to impact that sensitive environment, whether it's where people are dispersed camping, how they're accessing climbing areas, how they're visiting some of the cultural resource sites that are out there all of those sorts of things. Everyone's pretty concerned about it and really kind of invested in the place. I think another one that was was really interesting was that, you know, a lot of times we think that it's beginner climbers going to some of these places. And a lot of the survey results kind of pointed toward climbers that were a little bit more seasoned, but their first time going to Indian Creek. So it's not really a beginner area to go to. It's an area that you kind of, you know, move into or grow up into or, or whoever you want to kind of say that where the climbers that were going, some of them, a lot of folks were like, oh, I only go a couple of times or only I've only been a few times, but I have been climbing for up to five years, 10 years. And so it's it's just a little bit, sometimes we think that like, oh, it's just a lot of new climbers going out there that don't know the rules and regulations. And it turns out that it's climbers that are just not familiar with the place. I mean, in other areas, climbing areas where you have worked or done studies, I mean, is it normal to give to somehow educate the climbers on natural history and, you know, biological happenings, as well as land boundaries, things like that. Is that a normal thing in most climbing areas? It's a pretty loose thing that happens in other climbing areas. Like I said early on, climbing kind of encompasses a whole host of one, landscapes and environments, but also land management boundaries to private lands. And so, you know, climbing is on forest service, it's on BLM, it's on national park service, it's on private land, it's on state parks, city parks, county parks. And so in order to kind of set up some sort of education program to that, you know, for us as a national organization, some of the topics need to be really broad. It's like, okay, when you're climbing in the forest, these are things to consider. Or when you're climbing in the desert, these are the types of things to consider, as opposed to really, really specific. That being said, there's an estimated, you know, more than 7 million climbers at this point in the United States. And so they all get their information in a host of different ways, yeah. whether, it's through, whether it's through guidebooks or online resources or word of mouth from their friends. So the education message is something that we're all trying to 
figure out in a way that really reaches like the largest audience of climbers. Okay. And so this fall, you plan, you being the Access Fund, plans to deploy stewards to Indian Creek. What will that look like? What will they do? And kind of where, where would you find them? Oh, sure. Sure. And so the Climber Steward Program that we're launching in Indian Creek this fall is based off of a model that started in Yosemite National Park. And they have had climbing climber stewards in Yosemite for the last, I think, six years at this point. And they have been support for the climbing ranger program. And it's really important to kind of give that history a little bit. And so stuff that they've done is, is climber coffees at Camp 4. They lead the Ask a Climber program in El Cap Meadows, where they have spotting scopes. And they point out climbers on El Cap. And then Joshua Tree National Park also has a climber steward program. And so those were kind of the models for us to to learn from to be like, okay, what's working, what's not working. We need to take on this program. We're a national organization. So for us, it's important to see that wonderful program go in other places. So this fall is Indian Creek and it's kind of our pilot program. And the stewards are going to be basically, they're going to be living in one of the two BLM campsites down in Indian Creek for about 10 weeks each season. Their duties will include pretty much climber coffees, probably three days a week where they'll rotate to different locations and they'll have what we call climber coffees. And they'll, they'll offer free coffee for climbers in the morning as an opportunity to make connections, education, talk to climbers about where they're planning on going. Oh, where are you camping? Oh, you're, you're dispersed camping. Well, what are you using for your human waste management system? Oh, did you think about this? Right. Oh, you're going, oh, you're planning on going over to that wall. Oh, this is your first time climbing here. Did you know that that wall is closed for raptor protect? You know, we're trying to avoid that area for raptor raptors. And then also at the same time, we're going to have at these climber coffees, other education opportunities. So we'll have the BLM come out and talk about different BLM topics. We'll have the dugout ranch, which does ranching down there, come out for a climber coffee or two and have them discuss kind of like what they're working on with the, with the ranch when it comes to when they're running their cattle, when they're moving their cattle or the research center that they're running around, you know, protecting the canyon lands. And then the climbers stewards will also kind of go to different cracks, different climbing areas and talk to climbers at the climbing areas that they're at okay. as they're, you know, as climbing air, climbers are like at the crags, sometimes they spread out and all of a sudden there's like a huge group that's down there with their packs everywhere and, and the ropes in some spots and their jackets at other spots. And the stewards can kind of go up and, you know, and talk to them about why it's important to keep their, keep their gear tight as opposed right. to like what we call a gear sprawl. And so they'll be doing a lot of that sort of stuff. They'll also be going out to different, going out to the dispersed campsites and talking to the people that are camped there and just be like, oh, hey, like just talking about dispersed camping. Like, oh, did you know it's high fire danger? Let's not do fires this time. Yeah. Or, uh, or, oh, like, you know, what is your, what is your human waste management system? Like, oh, you're not doing anything. Like, you know, what, what would be great is if you were all to kind of go into Moab and get yourself some wag bags or something like that. And then at the same time, they're also going to support some resource monitoring with the BLM, whether it's doing car counts at trailheads or going out and just kind of monitoring, helping do the Raptor monitoring, things like that. So it's a, it's a pretty well-rounded thing, but it's really focused on making connections with visitors and kind of just giving some best practices for minimum impact behaviors. The stewards will be branded access as access fund employees. And so they'll have a, you know an access fund shirt uh, with a climber steward you know, basically climber steward on the back of their shirt. So climbers starting this fall, will start seeing them on a pretty consistent, regular basis. And again, like the stewards are not, they're not there for enforcement. They're not there to be policed. They're not there to, 
tell people what they're doing wrong. It is really about education and getting people to make a connection to the place. It's stuff that we've talked about for a while. And I think Indian Creek is the perfect place to do it. One, because of the, just the attention that it's gotten over the last several years right? from the monument boundary shenanigans, but just also the amount of climbers that are, that are out there right now. I mean, we're, we're at more than 7 million. Nice. And season is fall and spring? Or just yes. Fall? Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah, we're launching in, in October this, October this year, and they'll go through the end of November. Mm-hmm. And then we'll probably, and then the program will probably start up at the very end of February next year and go until pretty much the end of April. Is there an uh, estimate for how many years this will be in place? Or is that something to be figured out as you go along? That is, that is something to be figured out, but our goal is honestly to, to have this be a pretty permanent thing down there. The seasonal stewards will be hired positions paid for by the Access Fund. The successful candidates will be granted free camping on the BLM land, camp and climbing gear, and reimbursement for their travel. The program will launch the first week of October. You mentioned a little bit of this, but will the stewards, they're going to have some interaction directly with the BLM and land managers out there in terms of kind of what they're seeing or finding? Yes. Yeah, the BLM down there, the Monticello Field Office is a critical partner for us, for, for down there at Indian Creek. They're the, they're the managers of land managers for Indian Creek, and we have a long partnership with them. We've been working with them for years on on a host of just like climbing related management projects and programs and things like that. So this is just a next evolution for us. We're going to be working with them. They're going to be providing the camping. They'll be a critical partner as will the the dugout ranch and the nature conservancy who are also big, big partners in Indian Creek. Right. And so where you have these stewardship programs before you mentioned Joshua tree and Yosemite, and I I assume they are ongoing. What are some, some of the big, or small, uh, what are some of the changes, improvements, or any kind of results that you've seen having people on site at a climbing area? I think that there's just been, there's just a better connection between the climbers and the place. And I think, you know, as I'm a rock climber myself, obviously, and, you know, a lot of us have a tendency to just like go to a climbing area and we're focused on the climbing itself. And we're having a stewards program or people that are kind of advocates for the, the, the place as well. That appreciation grows with the climbing community that visits. So Yosemite, for instance, the National Park Service has run this program and they've been doing climber coffees forever. And they always have a large group of folks that circle around and they talk about raptor issues or indigenous land issues there in, in Yosemite or the history that's of the place. And I've been to a few of these climber coffees myself. And and the questions that climbers ask are actually non-climbing related a lot of the time. And they're like, oh, well, what's the history of this part of the park? Or what's the history with this sort of a thing? And then with Joshua Tree, they ask a lot about some of the desert plants. Like, oh, I saw this plant the other day that it was flowering. What was that? So you can see the spark within the visiting climbers for something besides climbing. And it drives that connection so that they become stewards, they become advocates, they become supporters of the place, and they want to protect it even more so. Climbers have a long history of being good stewards. My role takes me to, to climbing areas across the country and I meet with land managers on a, on a regular basis and I frequently get like, climbers are generally our favorite user group. They always show up for volunteer events. They always show up and want to help. And we've been doing since our 
early beginnings as, as a community, we've always done kind of like volunteer days and to show land managers like, hey, this is our place and we want to help take care of it. And I think that, that that ethos is growing in the community and it's growing maybe slightly behind the amount of people that are getting into the sport. But I think that that is just a matter of, of when will that kind of level out where the growth is happening at the same time. Right. And uh, this is your first pilot program, the first access fund supported stewardship program. Is that correct? Climber steward program. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This is the, yeah, this is, this is the first time that access fund is doing the climber stewards. So the others were um, national, the national parks were handling. Correct. It. Okay. Yep. 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 So you've modeled the program more or less on their kind of what they do. On what they do and, and the successes that they've had. We, you know, we're, we have great partnerships in Joshua tree and, and Yosemite. So it's been nice to, to see them like have those programs and be a part of it but then also like allow them to to grow it and, and make them specific to to their place right. which is also what's really really what's really nice about this program is that we can model it and make it specific to the place we plan on expanding the program to go national with it so indian creek is our kind of our kind of our first spot and then we see at least a handful of other spots that we'd like to go to and it's it's, it's a cool opportunity to make those really specific to those places. Uh, where else are you thinking of? What can you say? <laughs> I'll keep it quiet for now. Okay. <laughs> I'll keep it, I'll keep it quiet for now. So, some fun. of them are moving. Yeah. Some are moving faster than others. Yeah. So I don't want to. Well, what first got you into climbing? <laughs> I don't even know. No, it's a, it's a good question. So I grew up in a, a New York city suburb, just across the river in New Jersey. And uh, as a child, we had a little summer place up in northern New Jersey. Basically, we went camping and I was always outdoors. I was always swimming and, and canoeing and all that sort of stuff. And then I moved to, to Washington State and I started kind of I went backpacking and I looked at some mountains in the distance and I said, well, wait a minute. Well, how do I get to the top of that? And that was kind of the seed that just started it all. And then ever since then, I've been pretty invested in, in climbing my main Early on was alpine climbing, crossing glaciers, going up on, on, on big mountains. And then I kind of transitioned into more like cragging and single pitch sort of stuff. And now I kind of do a little bit of everything. And so I've been climbing now for about for 20 years. And it's, uh, it's taken me to some pretty amazing places. I will say that climbing happens in some of the most amazing landscapes. Nice. Well, Ty, thanks for talking to Science Moab. Hopefully we can talk with you again in the future and see how this program's working out. Love to. Sounds great. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.